Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a very sad man who, you know, looking like that guy from your neighborhood who lives alone and no one trick-or-treats at his house because he's a little weird. And that one time he crashed your cousin's wedding or even more creepily, a high school prom. That guy. Well, that guy, the GOP's in-house Norma Desmond, showed up to a Mar-a-Lago wedding party this past Thursday and kicked the cover band off stage to spew deranged voting conspiracies literally a half a year after he lost bigly to now President Joe Biden. Watch Arizona. Some very interesting things are happening in Arizona, right? You know about that. And we just had a great ruling, or the, actually the Senate, the state Senate of Arizona just had a great ruling. Let's see what they find. I wouldn't be surprised if they found thousands and thousands and thousands of votes. So we're going to watch that very closely. And after that, you'll watch Pennsylvania, and you'll watch Georgia, and you're going to watch Michigan and uh, Wisconsin, and you're watching New Hampshire. They found a lot of votes up in New Hampshire just now. You saw that. The cover band was like, can we just go ahead and start playing 80s pop songs now? I mean, I mean, it's, it's sad, isn't it? It's frankly embarrassing for someone who once held the title of President of the United States. But that rather undignified figure, fading and decrepit though he is, is still supported by a vast swath of the Republican Party. And those Republicans are waging war on Congresswoman Liz Cheney, the third-ranking House Republican, for now at least. She's faced huge backlash from her party for doing what she did in this tweet, simply aligning herself with democracy and saying what's true, that the 2020 presidential election was not stolen and refusing to bow down to the big lie. Cheney was responding to Trump's latest wannabe presidential statement, which read like one of his old tweets with a masthead photoshopped on top. In that statement, he called the free and fair election itself a big lie. Just as he calls the real press fake news, or very gaslighting, very Orwellian, very Trump. The truth is, Donald Trump is declining in interest and in performance. He's been canceled from the White House and from Twitter. The only stage that we see him on lately is the one he owns. This is the real Trump. The one he so desperately never wanted you to see. A reclusive mad king trying to relive the halcyon days of his presidency, who is now even outshined, outshined by his own conspiracy theories. As the big lie justifies taxpayer-funded fake audits and energizes new voting restrictions without him even being in office. And yet this fading figure is the person the once grand old party remains obsequiously loyal to. And the question is, why? David Pluff, former Obama campaign manager, and Tim Miller, writer at large for The Bulwark, join me now. And gentlemen, thank you for being here. Let, let me play one other. This is Mitt Romney, who was the 2012 presidential nominee, getting booed in his own home state of Utah at the GOP convention. Take a look. You know me as a person who uh, 
who says what he thinks, and I don't hide the fact that I wasn't a fan of our last president's character issues. Listen, uh, Tim, I'm not a fan of Mitt Romney. I'm just going to be honest. Not a fan. But he has a dignity that is sort of comports himself like what a normal presidential-like figure looks like and sounds like, right? He has a certain dignity just as a man. Donald Trump is ridiculous. He, he looks like he, you know, he's like, you know, smoking a cigarette and being like, you know, back when I was a high school senior, I was a captain of the football team. Like, he's that guy at the party, and yet the Republicans are bowing to him like he's the king. I don't get it, do you? Uh, well, I sort of get it. Uh, that is quite the video, huh? I mean, uh, David was nicer to Romney in 2012 than the <laughs> Republican audience was there in Utah. Um, look, I, I was down in South Carolina this week, Joy, and uh, I, I went to Mike Pence's a uh, very low-key uh, speech there, his first comeback speech. And then I went to a bunch of county events to try to answer this question. What is what is the reason for this? And, and I, the answer is that, that, that the Republican base is desperate to take... Uh-oh. I think we just lost Tim. Okay, we're going we're gonna to go to... I'm going to go to Fluff. I really want to hear the rest of that sentence. So we're going to try to fix Tim's audio, you know, good old... Uh, the interwebs are not easy to work with. But but to, to go to you for a minute, David, you did run against Mitt Romney. And so you know that even someone like Mitt was willing to say a lot of really bizarre things. Remember when he said, you know, maybe if I was really from Mexico, maybe I could get some votes. Like the, even the dignified ones are willing to lower themselves because they know there's a part of the base that just needs that. Right. That has this need for sort of guttural politics. But I wonder at this point, since Donald Trump is a bit pathetic, he can't attack them on Twitter. He can't really hurt them. Do you understand why? Just as a matter of politics, Republicans are still genuflecting toward him. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. For your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. I am puzzled by it, Joy. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's only been nine years, less than <laughs> nine years, you know, since Mitt Romney was a Republican nominee, yet you have him being booed at a state party uh, convention. Uh, and the carnival barker cult leader, diminished though he may be, to your point, uh, at Mar-a-Lago, uh, has basically the entire Republican Party captive. Uh, and it's cowardice. I mean, I'm struck by uh, so many members of today's Republican Party just seem fearful, afraid of immigrants, afraid of masks, some of them afraid of vaccines. But above all else, they're afraid of Donald Trump and getting on his wrong side. And what strikes me is none of these people, 
I really believe this. You know, you get into politics. I've met a lot of people who who sought office. A lot of them won. They didn't go in there to, to pay all of their uh, basically political capital is bow down uh, at the knees of one leader. There's issues there they care about. Uh, they tended to believe in the Constitution. They got there because they won their own election. And they've thrown all of that aside. And, and my question is, is this going to change? I certainly don't think it's going to change through 22, because I think the successful Republican candidates in primaries and contested primaries will be those that embrace the big lie. Uh, that suggests that COVID was created by the Chinese, uh, that attacked Dr. Fauci. That's where all the energy is. It's not where probably the vast majority of Republican voters are, but those that drive primaries are. Uh, so, But that is the one thing that unites most Republicans, with Cheney and Romney being notable exceptions, is they just do not want to do anything to get on the wrong side of Donald Trump, uh, his ridiculous sons, uh, and, you know, Trump's base. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Tim, you're back. I'm glad you're back. Finish your sentence. You said you, you went down to former Vice yeah. President Pence's event and then. Yeah. So, uh, and then I went to some county Republican events in South Carolina. And, and there's this, if you think Donald Trump is sad and ridiculous, there's this man named Lynn Wood that's running for party chair down there. And he is passing off even more absurd, like almost, it's almost like he's doing an apology the kind of things he said. The inauguration didn't happen. You know, uh, Joe Biden only got 2%. Uh, things that he, he told me that Joe Biden wasn't inaugurated because the sun wasn't over his head. He's going to get about a quarter of the vote among the Republican uh, regulars in South Carolina. The, the party is desperate for people to tell them what they want to hear, to bring the liberals down a peg. And, and that is what uh, Donald Trump plays into that Mitt Romney refuses to. God bless him. Right. I mean, Mitt Romney is still at least trying to speak to underlying principles and beliefs. He's not just going to tell these folks what they want to hear. And, and this is the lowest bar to step over, but it's what he and Liz are stepping over. And it's putting them on the wrong side of a very angry, very aggrieved, um, very delusional, frankly, Republican base. Yeah, I mean, Susan Collins couldn't even admit who she voted for, right? She she doesn't dare. And she just got reelected. It's like, lady, you got six years. Say who you voted for. You Don't be afraid. Can I just play one more piece of video? Because it's just so... Bananarama. I have to play it. This is Michael Flynn, who apparently can recite the QAnon pledge, but not the pledge pledge. Take a listen. Listen, I'm going to say the Pledge of Allegiance. You're going to say it along with me. I want you to hear, not just listen, I want you to hear every single word of the Pledge of Allegiance. That is our pledge to each other. That is our pledge to this country. Put your hand over your heart. I pledge of allegiance to the flag. I'm going to start with you, David Bluff, because you lived through I mean, you know, the previous president had to live through the Tea Party. How much of this do you think is an extension of that movement that's just been really ground into the bones of the party? That's my question for you. And then I'm, I got a question for Tim. Well, it's a great question, Joy. And yeah, this did not originate with Donald Trump. The seeds were there, some of them below ground, some of them above ground. He was, of course, himself involved in the birther controversy. Uh, but I think now this has been normalized. Uh, and, and what really concerns me uh, is do we think in 2022 Republicans who might lose close House and Senate elections are just going to concede and go quietly into the night? I highly doubt it. Uh, and I think we have to look ahead to 24. So until 
And to Tim's point, this is a very low bar. But until you see more Republican leaders saying, at the very least, winners of elections <laughs> win elections, uh, and we're going to you know, concede as we normally have been, our democracy is in grave danger. Uh, I mean, this is one of the gravest, I think, dangers the country's face. So again, all of these voter suppression laws are making it harder to register, harder to vote, uh, Dropbox eliminations, make it harder to vote by absentee, uh, anti-democratic. But the big concern that I have is they want to take control from elections officials and voters and hand right. it over to Republicans so that you, they you, can you, stay in control. That's the threat yeah. that we're facing right now. And again, when Romney gets booed and Liz Cheney may be out by the end of the week, that tells you they're like two people on the island. Everybody else is not only going along quietly That's with the right. big lie, they're increasingly getting comfortable embracing it. You, you have set it up perfectly, and I promise you all, I did not hear what he was going to say in advance, because, Tim, that was going to be my question to you. Because I get the sense that for regular order Republicans who are going along with the Kevin McCarthy types, this is GOTV. It's not that they personally don't think that Joe Biden is president and that there's like a, a fake green screen where we're pretending that he's the president and really Donald Trump is. I doubt Kevin McCarthy is that stupid. But that they think that their voters won't turn up won't vote unless they are guaranteed to win, unless they are guaranteed the black folks can't vote and that only they get to vote and only their own friends get to vote. And unless they hear from people like Kevin McCarthy, we worship you, Donald Trump, you're really president, right? Is How much of this do you think is GOTV? I, no, look, that's exactly right. Just really quick for an answer. That video, that Michael Flynn video for your viewers, that was at a Linwood event, the guy I was talking about. I, I wrote more <laughs> about this for the board. You saw how packed that crowd was. I heard people are saying he's thinking about running in 2024. He was Donald Trump's top national security advisor. I, this is just so, such scary stuff, uh, Joy. But to your question, yeah, look, I, I think it's about probably a quarter of the House caucus actually believes this stuff. And the majority, the plurality is about half. And, and they're just afraid. Your, David's point, you're right, is exactly right. They're afraid. They want to make sure their voters can turn out. They're going to say whatever they need to do uh, in order to do that. And, and they're going to go along with whatever they need to go along with up to and including voting to overturn elections in, yes. in order to do it. And, and, and that's basically how, how the things break down. But, but really quick, after 2022, those numbers are going to change and the true believer numbers are going up. And, and, you know, the rest of those numbers right. are going down. And then the and I think everybody needs to read your bulwark, Colin, because then the question really for Democrats is what's more powerful, checks or banana rama cuckoo bird stuff? And that's going to be the question among just working class voters. What's more powerful? And, y and y'all better really push that it's checks because we're in trouble if these people get power again. Uh, David Pluff and Tim Miller, thank you both very much. And still ahead on the readout, Andrew Brown Jr. is laid to rest in North Carolina as his family demands answers about how he was killed, starting with the still unreleased body cam footage. Plus, two members of the Chauvin prosecution team join us. We still have lots of questions about his trial and sentencing, including why Chauvin's long history of dangerous behavior didn't come up. And medical experts are now predicting the U.S. will never achieve herd immunity, due in part to Republican vaccine hesitancy. And I'll also have a word or two for a certain Fox News host who's all worked up about something or other. I'm not sure it has anything to do with race, though, right? Like, right? Right? The Read Report continues after this. Andrew Brown Jr., grandfather, father, brother, and son, was laid to rest today. Brown was shot and killed by Pasquotank County Sheriff's deputies in North Carolina on April 21st. The shooting is currently under investigation by the FBI and state authorities. 
Family members mourned his loss and continued calls for transparency from the county sheriff's department and demands for police reform. Reverend Al Sharpton delivered the eulogy for Brown only two weeks after he delivered the eulogy for Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man shot and killed by police in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. Brown's family joins a painfully large constellation of family members who've lost their loved ones because of the police. The family of George Floyd, Eric Garner, and Dante Wright were there to offer their support and condolences. It's a shame in America that us as black men, we got to duck and dodge death when it's not even looking at us. Some people says that, oh, you'll get over it, but you never get over it. You go on, but you don't get over it. I'm mad. I'm outraged. It happened again to somebody else. Reverend Bishop William Barber also spoke at the funeral, as did Bakari Sellers and Ben Crump, lawyers for the Brown family. Because Andrew cannot make the plea for due process, it is up to us to make the plea for due process. For the black folk and white folk, Democrats and Republicans all watching today, they all need to know that we're tired of the cycle of grief that comes along with being black in this country. But Andrew was a black man trying to make it in a society where black men are born in danger. But I want you to be comfort that he was a man. A father of seven, a nephew, a cousin, a son, a brother, a grandson. He was a man. Joining me now is Reverend Al Sharpton, president of the National Action Network and host of MSNBC's Politics Nation. And Rev, you know, I, 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 as I think about this funeral, I think about black public grief and the fact that going all the way back to Emmett Till, it's like we've had to display our grief to the world in order to have our humanity acknowledged. At a certain point, do you feel like these displays of grief are moving laws, are moving policy, or, or are they more a catharsis for the family? Certainly it's a catharsis for the family, and that's needed because it's real pain. The question is why we keep going through these expressions of grief without seeing legislation and policies changing what we're grieving about. So many of us are talking about we're tired of displays of black pain, but we need to talk about why we are feeling that pain. And that is because we are not instituting and, and executing and enforcing laws that would remove what the pain is. When you can in the last year, we are less than a year from when George Floyd was lynched by knee. And you've had any number of cases all the way to now, today, literally, where we bury another person killed by police. And if you go from Breonna Taylor to, uh, to Ahmed Arbery to Rashid Brooks or to Dante Wright, all the way through, some even after the conviction of Chauvin. So rather than just analyze black grief, analyze what is causing the grievance. And the thing is, you know, I, you know, I'm, look, I moved back to, to New York, back to Brooklyn in 1988. You've been on this message about police brutality, about racial profiling through president after president after president. We've watched the president of the United States, Barack Obama, publicly grieve and sing Amazing Grace at the funeral after the massacre in Charleston. What do you think it's going to take 
for us to go from the empathy people express for people like Andrew Brown Jr. and like George Floyd to finally actually getting something done. There must be strong federal laws that gives oversight over state laws. That is why it is so important we have a strong George Floyd uh, a, a Justice and Policing Act passed by the Senate that has already passed the House. We sat in the back of the bus for decades until yeah. there was a Civil Rights Act of 64. We couldn't vote until there was a Voting Rights Act of 65. So, yes, when you came to New York in 88, I was fighting. I was black in 88. I'm black in 21. And we still don't have a law that holds police accountable that disproportionately kills blacks, unarmed blacks at that. Yeah, absolutely. Look how long we had to fight for anti-lynching laws. That you know, the, It's exhausting, but thank you for reminding us that this activism is not a couple years uh, work. It's lifetime work. And thank you for doing it. Uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, my friend, thank you so much for being here. Um, and joining me now is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. And, and you know, this is your district, Congresswoman. Um, we've now had these two, you know, in your district, you had the George Floyd case. Um, and then, of course, you had um, the young man, Dante Wright, who was also killed in your district. And these things were happening on top of the Derek Chauvin trial. So I'll ask you the same question. Dealing with these compounded moments of, of black grief, how do you deal with that as a policymaker? And how can we deal with it better? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. I think it's one that we all uh, we are all uh, struggling with and, and continuing to um, to deal with. I think there is a lot of emotional um, exhaustion that many of us who, who are black lawmakers and uh, black people in public service are experiencing because every single day, you know, that there are ways to transform uh, the justice system, the um, uh, policing system. Uh, and you have to have conversation with people who want to turn a blind eye to the injustices that exist within our systems, who continue to insist that this country is not a country that is racist, that our systems um, don't have racism uh, embedded in them. Uh, and the just sheer exhaustion uh, that, that, that it takes for you to continue to plea for your humanity and for your dignity to be recognized by your own colleagues um, is really a stripping process um, of um, of one's uh, decency really every single day. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I have a story here in front of us that, you know, the Columbus police, we know that there's the Makai Wright case. Columbus police were, quote, running amok, use of force, uh, overuse of force. Uh, Columbus officers are now banned from using those kind of methods of, quote, unquote, non-lethal force. You could go on and on and on. I know you've introduced new legislation to try to deal with this because it, it is like a ping pong game. It's like every city. We, we could talk about 20 cities tonight if we had time. You have a piece of legislation that you'd like to see go forward. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, I mean, as uh, you know, Reverend Al Sharpton was was just uh, expressing, it is really important for us to to recognize that uh, the the criminal justice system is not adequate to prosecute itself and to investigate itself. Um, it's been uh, very evident that whether um, we see the off cases where the DOJ is invited in or um, the FBI comes in to, to investigate, those are cases that grab national headline, he headlines, right? They're not uh, cases that many of us hear about in our own communities where there is never going to be justice for those families. 
families. And so it is important for there to be um, a federal oversight uh, board that does proactive investigations every single time that there is a life lost in the custody of police officers, every single time that there is um, bodily harm caused by the police. Uh, and to, to not just be where family members and the community uh, is pouring out into the streets demanding for there to be oversight um, over the loss of their loved ones or the injury that is caused to their loved ones. But it is within the responsibility of an actual um, board that does these investigations proactively every single day. And do you have co-sponsors? Um, do you think that you, this can pass, that it can actually also get through the Senate? Yeah, well, what we are hoping for is to, to push it to be part of the uh, just George Floyd Justice and Policing Act negotiations um, that uh, my my colleague and mentor, uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass, is, is leading. Um, she's uh, expressed interest uh, in trying to, to bring it up as a next step, uh, because we know that the Justice George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is a transformative piece of legislation. Um, but Many of the cases that we have seen with Dante Wright and others uh, show us that there are further guardrails that are that are needed. Uh, and in order for us to transform these systems, um, we have to have strong guardrails first. Absolutely. Well, I have to have you back because I wanted to also ask you, I'm out of time, but I know that you're also working on issues in terms of refugees and refugee resettlement. And I know that the Biden administration, they reversed course, maybe partly because they heard you saying you might want to reverse course. So I want to congratulate you on getting that done. Uh, but I want to have you back to talk about that issue as well. So Congressman Ilan Omar. So good. what did you say? I said prom that promises made, promises kept. Uh, we, all we stand for is that promises are kept. Amen. That's what that's what good politics is about. Congresswoman Ilan Omar, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here tonight. All right. And still ahead. Should Derek Chauvin's long history of dangerous police work have been brought up at his trial? Will it come up at his sentencing? We will ask two members of the prosecution team that put him away or that at least got him convicted. And that's next on The Readout. Stay with us. Next month, a judge will sentence former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Chauvin was found guilty on all three counts against him, including second-degree unintentional murder that has a maximum sentence of 40 years in prison. But under Minnesota guidelines, the presumptive sentence for someone with no criminal record, like Chauvin, would be 12 and a half years. And with good behavior, he could be out in eight. That would mean Chauvin could get less than one year for every minute he squeezed the life out of Floyd's body. However, prosecutors are asking the judge in the case to give Chauvin a more severe penalty. In court documents filed Friday, prosecutors argued that there are five aggravating factors, any of which would be grounds for a harsher sentence. The documents cite Chauvin's abuse of power while inflicting gratuitous pain with other officers on a vulnerable George Floyd while in the presence of minor children. And joining me now are two of those prosecutors, Jerry Blackwell and Steve Schleicher, uh, two fantastic prosecutors. I watched the trial um, every day that I was able to. And I think that you all you, you did a great job of telling a story. But there was one part of the story. And I'll start with you, um, Prosecutor Blackwell, Mr. Blackwell. I know you're not a prosecutor in your normal life, so I'll just call you Mr. Blackwell. Um, 
wasn't included, that we found out sort of kind of toward the end of the trial, that Derek Chauvin also has been a menace before. He has a violent history as a police officer of choking a teenager for 17 minutes and leaning on him for 17 minutes. Um, Other use of force cases, at least 22 internal investigations. May I ask, number one, why that wasn't allowed to come in? And will that be used um, as more evidence of why he should get a harsher sentence at his sentencing? Well, let me answer the the first part of that. Uh, We had to make a strategic decision ourselves as to whether we were going to bring in any of those other uh, incidents. Uh, We saw the video. We felt that when the the jurors uh, were able to see that video, uh, it would pierce their their consciousness in of and by itself. So we we focused on what happened uh, in what I call the 929 uh, as the main thing. And then our focus in the trial was to keep the main thing the main thing and then not to delve into so many of the other incidents uh, that then would bring their own kind of proof issues and, and so on and, and trying to introduce those where the defense will be able to respond to them. It's, it's hard enough uh, to uh, convict a police officer, even with video of this sort. And we didn't yeah. want to leave any sort of margin where they could argue about something other than uh, the conduct that everybody could see uh, that George Floyd was subjected to. So we made a decision to just to keep focused on Mr. Chauvin's conduct as it related to, uh, to George Floyd and make that the main thing and have the whole trial center just on that. So going forward, do you think that you'll make that same decision in the sentencing? Well, will we? You know, you know in, our, in our sentencing, as you pointed out uh, earlier in the segment, I mean, we've, we've pointed to different features of this particular offense that could give the judge the ability to give a harsher sentence if the judge chooses. Now, the attorney yeah. general has made clear he's not out uh, for revenge. He wants accountability. He wants a fair sentence, um, but this is not a revenge sentence. But again, focusing on the conduct at hand, this isn't a a defendant when they're sentenced before a judge. This isn't a St. Peter at the pearly gate kind of experience where you examine everything they've done in their life, right? We're looking at the conduct that occurred on the ground at the time and the features of this conduct that may make it more serious and would give the judge the ability to give a higher sentence if possible. The presence yeah, of me, children. Oh, yeah. go ahead. Well, no, I wanted to, you, you know, you make a really excellent point, Mr. Schleicher. I want to stay with you for just a moment because you had a great line. You both had some really memorable lines. But at the end, when you said, well, what's the motive? The motive was pride. And I know I, I think one of the most searing pieces of evidence in the in the in the trial was the face of Derek Chauvin, the sort of blank look that he had on even in the court. He didn't have any emotion. Whereas I contrast that with Mohammed Noor, Officer Mohammed Noor, who got 12 and a half years, um, I believe it was for third degree uh, murder and and secondary manslaughter. This is him at his sentencing, uh, Officer Mohammed Noor. I have owed Ms. Ms. Ruschek's family an apology for a long time. I did write them a letter while in jail, and now I apologize in person for taking the life of such a perfect person who was dear to them and so many others. I caused this tragedy and it is my burden. I wish though that I could relieve that burden. Others feel from the loss that I caused. I cannot and that is a troubling reality for me. I have one, so one question first to you, Mr. Schleicher and then I have one more question for Mr. Blackwell. 
if there is no expression of remorse, will that wind up factoring in in this case? And could it wind up factoring in the other three uh, officers who are going to go on trial in the George Floyd murder murder? I don't think that, you know, in terms of what happens in the other cases, I really can't comment on those. Those are matters that are going to be dealt with later this summer. As far as whether an expression of remorse would assist the judge in determining what the proper sentence would be here, you know, uh, that certainly is something that a judge could find persuasive. I think that an expression of remorse or acknowledgement uh, is something that uh, the community, the family, uh, the the whole system would find uh, helpful. But, um, you know, we just don't know. We don't know what his uh, strategy is going to be. And we don't know what Judge Cahill will find persuasive. You know, uh, the sentencing a defendant, deciding what number uh, of, of years in prison to sentence a defendant for criminal conduct is the hardest thing that a judge does. Uh, and I do not envy the judge in this case having to make that decision because it's very complicated. It's very complicated. And there's a lot of implications, I think, for society. Uh, uh, Mr. Blackwell, I have to come back to you for just a moment. I read some things about you that are very fascinating. Uh, you are not a prosecutor. Uh, you've been a defense attorney. My understanding is you worked on a posthumous pardon for a guy called Max Mason um, in a case that involved lynchings. Um, there were people who were lynched in his case, six black circus workers who were accused of raping a white woman in 1920. They were lynched by a mob and a mock trial was held. Max Mason was the only one sent to prison. He t- Talk a little bit about sort of what inspires you to sort of get involved in these cases. I know you did in this one for free and also took time off of your beekeeping to do it. <laughs> no, the beekeeping is just an alternative way for me to be stung. So when I'm not doing the law, <laughs> uh, but but with the, the Max Mason uh, posthumous pardon, uh, we, we knew that we we're coming up on the 100 year anniversary of this tragedy in Duluth, Minnesota, and people don't think about uh, sort of the great white north as a place where these kinds of tragedies take place. But this is what was one of the worst in the nation's history with 10,000 of the, uh, the the locals there present for this uh, in, a, in a town that had a population of 100,000. So as uh, this commemoration was coming up, um, I learned more about the story of Max Mason, the young circus worker from, Al- uh, from Alabama, the uh, only person uh, convicted of uh, this fictitious rape of a, of a white woman. Uh, there were 10,000 onlookers to uh, those that murdered him. None of them uh, were uh, convicted of uh, doing anything to anyone. And it was just a wrong that, that uh, I felt needed to be righted, that his name needed to be cleared. Uh, there was a, a stain, frankly, that uh, was, yeah. was covered about the state that needed to be addressed also. And it seemed well, to be I- a worthwhile thing for me, but my law firm to get involved in. Absolutely. Well, uh, both of you are both members of what was definitely a dream team. Jerry Blackwell, Steve Schleicher. I don't know, Mr. Schleicher, if you're going to be compelled to do some beekeeping with your your new partner in uh, in, in prosecution there. But we'll see. Let us know if he does, if you do join in. Thank you all both. And still ahead uh, is reaching herd immunity out of the question with so many Americans turning a public health concern into a partisan political issue. Plus a few words for a certain Fox News host about his obsession with race. We'll be right back. So just for the record, I don't spend a lot of time watching Fox News or the BS factory as CNN's Jim Acosta more colorfully dubbed them this weekend. Personally, I prefer my news and information to be grounded in reality rather than monetizing my amygdala to keep me on edge and buying my pillows and gold. However, according to Media Matters, The Root, Crooks and Liars, and others who watch Fox News so you don't have to, at least three times in the last month, 
Well, Tucker Carlson took time off from badgering strangers in parks and bouncy houses to demand that they show him their children's unmasked faces to refer to moi as the race lady. The race lady. Why would he call me that? I mean, I used to run track in high school, but I mean, honestly, I'm not that fast. So what else could it be? Hmm, what else could it be? Watch the race lady on MSNBC. Harvard educated, but totally oppressed and absurdly racist claims, says the race lady from Harvard. Joy Reid, the race lady over at MSNBC. Here's the race lady from MSNBC finally putting her Harvard degree to work. Oh, wait a second, Harvard educated race lady. Now you're really confusing us. Well, Joy Ann Reid, the race lady over on MSNBC, took a quick break from haranguing Whitey yesterday. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Did he say Whitey? Oh, honey. Honey, Tuckums. Is this really about me fixating on race? Or is it about you fixating on race? I mean, when you recently went off on me for continuing to mask up post-vaccine while jogging in crowded Central Park, you weirdly, as you did in that montage, threw in my attending Harvard. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm sensitive to this stuff, but it felt kind of like a dog whistle. I mean, did you want to go to Harvard? Did, did they reject you? And you think, oh, yeah, they let the race lady in. Blah, affirmative action. Blah. Well, listen, let me cheer you up, okay? I got into Harvard and, okay, Yale, Vassar, and the University of Denver, too, because I had a really high GPA and fantastic SAT scores. And that's how affirmative action works, love. Schools search for smart people from diverse backgrounds so that these schools won't be as dry as all the major sports leagues were before they desegregated. See? And just because, you know, maybe you didn't have great grades and great test scores and needed your girlfriend's daddy to help you get into college doesn't mean that you don't have amazing people in your life who love you. I mean, you got all that Swanson money, right? Fish sticks for everybody. Woo. And, you know, you had fun at Trinity after, you know, you got bought in, right? By the way, what was the Dan White Society? You know what? Moving on. And just because the CIA rejected your application, I mean, look, things turned out fine for you. You had a great career over here at MSNBC. Oh, oh actually, okay, that didn't work out. Well, look, you were great on CNN, though, until Jon Stewart kind of humiliated you. But it's fine. You're fine. Things are going great for you. Back to the whole race thing. Just saying, I'm not the one who spools out over my neighborhood changing like I'm some segregationist housewife from the 1950s. That would be you, Tuckums. And I'm not the one spouting a conspiracy theory that white people are going to be replaced by a Democratic Party conspiracy to import non-white people to outnumber them, a theory that was also mouthed by the Charlottesville Dickie Torch Nazis. That would also be you. And the reason I continue to mask up in crowded places is because I don't know how many people in those crowds that I'm jogging around didn't hear about the court case where your bosses said that your show isn't news. So they listen to you like you are the news. And I don't trust that people who listen to you, Tuckums, 
are taking precautions against COVID rather than freaking out about a piece of cloth and busting into the Target to cough on all the cereal boxes like their 17th century colonizers touting measles blankets with them. People like you and your friends and the BS factory are keeping us steeped in COVID sickness and rage and paranoia. And the ways in which you, little Tucker, are making America worse are why I will continue to keep my mask on in a crowd. And we'll have more on your endless COVID hell, that the endless COVID hell that the Tuckers of our country, who, by the way, are the absolute worst, are helping to create. And that is next. There is mixed news today in the fight against COVID. The rate of new cases in this country has reached its lowest point since October. And the FDA is preparing to approve the use of the Pfizer vaccine in adolescents by next week. And yet, there's growing evidence that the United States may never reach herd immunity. According to The New York Times, there is widespread consensus among scientists and public health experts that the herd immunity threshold is not attainable, at least not in the foreseeable future, and perhaps not ever. That's because new variants are spreading too easily and vaccination is proceeding too slowly for herd immunity to be within reach anytime soon. As we know, vaccine hesitancy is deeply rooted in a person's politics. Among those who say they're unwilling to take the vaccine, 44% are Republicans, while just 8% are Democrats, according to a CNN poll last week. Yet we've seen the country eager to get back to life as normal. This weekend, more than 50,000 people gathered at Churchill Downs for the Kentucky Derby, including many without masks. And while that's fewer people than in past years, it was still the largest crowd to attend a sporting event since the beginning of the pandemic. Additionally, 80,000 municipal workers in New York City returned to their offices today. And the states of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut announced that starting on May 19th, restaurants, offices, retail stores, theaters, museums, barbershops, amusement parks, and gyms, and fitness centers will all be allowed to operate at full capacity. Joining me now is Dr. Kavita Patel, former Obama White House policy director and MSNBC medical contributor. And you know what? There, there is this sort of back and forth, right? Because the, the reward for getting vaccinated is supposed to be a return to normal life. But I think there are a lot of us who aren't, aren't so much worried about our bubble because our bubble are all doing the right thing. We're worried about the people who are refusing to do the right thing and still make us vulnerable. The idea that we'll never get to herd immunity is terrifying to me, honestly. What do we do if we don't get to herd immunity? Are we just going to have to live with a certain politically charged population that just is COVID vulnerable and can spread it? Forever. So, uh, no, I mean, you're absolutely right to be terrified. And it's ironic that like our country has the most vaccine available. We have enough for everyone, a plenty. We're going to add 12 to 15 year olds. And yet we're still going to see these resistant patterns. 28% of police officers in Columbus, Ohio are vaccinated. That leaves, as you can figure out, 72% who do not want to be vaccinated, even though they were eligible for months. So I do think we need to get into the next phase where we're talking about requirements, especially for critical settings. We still have four in 10 healthcare workers who have refused the vaccine and they cite the same reasons, not the political ones. So we do need to work at first with the people who have concerns about safety because I just can't give up. I am not going to concede that we give up on herd immunity. Joy, we have worked too hard, lost too many people to concede on that point. It's it, you know we the, the, Joe Biden when he said he was going to do 100 million vaccines he's like doubling that like we're doing a good job you look at countries like India where it's just devastating and we're not that we're not at that level yet 
But are we going to end up there because our younger people are getting it? Older people seem to be okay. But are we at a risk of going in the direction that India and some countries in Europe are going? Is it going to get that bad? It could. And I think that's why everybody asks me, you know, doctor, why are you so cautious and still wearing? I do what you do, Joy. I'm still wearing a mask when I'm kind of amongst crowds. And it's exactly for this reason. I don't know who's vaccinated. I don't know where they've come from or where they're going. And I don't know the immune status of people around me. So the reason we have to care about everyone being vaccinated is because these mutations are just looking, viruses are just looking for a place to reproduce. It's that simple. And they don't care what politic, what color, what state you live in. So you're right that this is a concern. And so we look in public health, we've done a terrible job at this. I think we need to figure out what is getting into people's kind of psychology. And for those people who are aligned on political reasons to not get vaccinated, it's one of the reasons I do think we're going to have to have requirements. I'm not going to want to go to a restaurant where people can just come in and put my children who cannot be immunized at risk because they're too young. That's absolutely that. And then and people sort of get mad about it. But the reality is, I don't want to be exposed to people who are taking the risk of getting covid because that exposes my godmother, who is 87. That exposes my auntie, who's in her 80s, my immune compromised cousins. It exposes my children, my husband. And I ain't doing it. And so are, it's going to get to the point where people are going to group themselves politically to stay away from people who politically are deliberately exposing themselves to COVID. Do you think, I mean, I want to put up this Candace Owens tweet. I normally would not give her any shine at all, but she did this tweet a year ago saying like, ha ha ha, India has only 169 deaths, It's no, uh, but it's 10 times more deadly than the flu, bro. That kind of misinformation, even a year later, I still hear people saying that it's just the flu. How do we convince people no, who are yeah. convinced that it is not that serious, and so they're willing to take the risk. What can we say to them? What can we say? I, I, I think we have to say what I've seen, what I know you've witnessed, that healthy young people are dying. They can die from this, that we have a vaccine that can prevent their death, and that if you don't understand what I'm talking about, it's putting a very rigid plastic tube down into your mouth and having a machine help you breathe. It's having tubes coming out of all parts of your body because you can't actually eat anything. And I've seen this. I think all the doctors we've talked to and worked with have also seen it. And it's that dramatic. And then I think it has to get down to this, Joy. It's not about you. Like This is the one time we need people to step up, do their part, because one person's action can actually help the whole community. It's not about you. And you need to just get over it. It's for everyone. Amen. If this was measles or Ebola, you wouldn't even ask a secondary question. Come on, people, do it for the the community. Uh, Dr. Kavita Patel, thank you very much. And before I go, I should note that NBC News has corrected its story from Friday on Rudy Giuliani. While the FBI was concerned that Giuliani was a target of Russian spies, they did not warn him of that threat, as NBC News originally reported. The story had been updated to reflect that the FBI did indeed prepare a briefing for Giuliani. But that briefing was not given, according to a second source familiar with the matter, because of concerns that the briefing could complicate the criminal investigation into the former New York City mayor. And we'll continue to follow this story. That is tonight's readout.
When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.